of knowing. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio, episode 214. Our guest today is Misha, and Jason Lingren is here as always. Uh, many people may have been noticing that there are a slew of commercials on television about all these class action suits around glyphosate or more specifically Roundup. Um, it's pretty clear what's going on when you see this kind of thing. What's going on here is they are getting ready to settle for good. In other words, they'll just pay out some nominal fee here, settle all these cases, and that will be that likely no one will ever be able to go back on uh, on the suit that has arisen here. And truth be told, I think these things are planned into the outset of many of these products, which, let's face it, they're against nature, aren't they? But anyhow, welcome, Jason. Good morning, Crow. So where are we in the world? Do we have anything? Uh, a little bit of crazy. I talked with people I know in San Diego, and I am told people are out everywhere. But I'm also told there are police on every damn street just about. Yeah, getting mixed reviews about that all over the country. So hard to say. The interesting thing about it is there are clearly many, many people standing up to protest, and it's not being covered one iota in the news. Uh, the news is full-spectrum messaging at this point, and they're not covering any of these things. But luckily for now, we have basically what journalists used to do being done by people who run YouTube channels and other things. Um, welcome, Misha. Um, how are you? Hey, doing good, guys. Good to be here. Can you give us just a little quick background, just so people understand you know what you're talking about? Uh, and then I'm going to hand it over to Jason to drive through what we have. Sure, sure. Well, I, I've got some academic credentials that I'll get to in a sec. But I, uh, first and foremost, I, I grew up on a farm. And so I was uh, I was working before I could uh, legally drive a vehicle. And so I've got a lot of experience with, with lar large-scale grain crops like wheat, uh, barley, flax, and, and even hemp. Um, and, of course, things like alfalfa. So um, then I went to college, got a degree in history. And, uh, you know, that's so funny, Crow, I, I couldn't find a job as a historian, so I ended up working uh, as a farm inspector. Um, and I worked under the, the USDA, the American, the, the Canadian, the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, and under EU, uh, all of those guidelines for farm inspections. There, there's a rule in farming, you sell the crop before it's even seeded. So by the time me, the inspector, gets to the farm, the farm's, farmer says, well, yeah, th this crop's going to Brussels or or this crop's going down to uh, to to the states, and and that's the that's the standard to which you inspect. So yeah, and I also have some uh, 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 in Japanese uh, standard inspection under my belt. So I did that for many years, uh, food and farm processing inspector, and then I started writing, and that brings me to to you guys' front door here this morning. Okay, um, before I get Jason going here, I, I'll just ask, uh, you know, online, I don't know, sometime around 2017, I forget how long ago, all of a sudden we were all being informed we were under EU guidelines. And I said, the hell I am, uh, quit every, all my media streaming, all the things that allowed me to do a podcast. And I went to a private server and I served my own content. Uh, does, does the EU have guidelines that bind American farmers? Only voluntarily. Yeah, I think what you're referring to is, is the Internet. And when Obama, before he left office, but it didn't go in a, into effect until 2017, he kind of handed the reins of a, basically an American invention, the Internet, handed it over to the EU in one four. I'm, I'm not even sure which which office it is over there. But that, yeah, so, so for farming, it's still voluntary. Um, so put it this way, if a Japanese buyer says this is how I want this crop grown, 
the farmer will grow it to that standard. Um, and as long as he doesn't violate American law because his farm is in America, he's he's fine. And in fact, if he cheats on the Japanese standard, uh, the USDA won't care. That's a private contract between him and the, the Japanese buyer. So, uh, yeah, the, the farmer is, to my knowledge, to this moment here that we're talking, is only bound by the law of, of the land in which he finds himself, you know, Canada or the United States. But farmers are very honest. So if they make a contract with a buyer and say, I'll do it this way, I'm, I'm going to tell you that 99.99 times uh, out of 100, they, they're doing exactly what the buyer wants. All right. Well, I'm going to kick it over to Jason. He probably knows a good deal more about glyphosate uh, than I do, though I am very versed in the agricultural ideas we're going to cover, um, having spent much of my life involved with growing things. But anyhow, Jason, it's all you, man. Right. Now, we did a show quite a while back where we covered Monsanto and Bayer's buyout and all that stuff. So talking about glyphosate, that is the actual chemical name of the brand Roundup. And you can walk into any Lowe's, Home Depot, maybe even Walmart. I've never actually looked, but you'll find this stuff everywhere. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So why don't we start with that, Misha? Why don't you break down what Roundup and specifically glyphosate is and why we're talking about it in the first place? Misha, sure. before you start yeah. up, just let me add also, like I mentioned, there's all these, they, 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 they use this funky language. They're doing all these class action lawsuits so they can get all the legal nonsense behind them now that Bear owns it. I think that's what it looks like anyhow. But so they're telling people on TV, oh, join this class action lawsuit because this is a probable carcinogen. So it probably or very likely causes cancer. They won't come out and say it, but yet this is still on every shelf everywhere. So what they're saying is this could kill you, but go to Home Depot and pick it up. By the way, we'll settle this lawsuit soon, but go ahead, pick up, Misha. Yeah, yeah. And what it boils down to is really how you're using it. And I'm I'm reluctant to defend Roundup because, of course, I, I grew up in an organic uh, framework, if you will, and worked in it for many years. But um, it, it did have validity at the start. It was only used in preceding. And when you see it on the store shelf, um, you know, for, for common use, of course, no one's seeding, right? They're just using it in their yard. The reason it was better to be used in pre-seeding is there was little to no chance it would end up in the food. So it used to be in the old days, a farmer would turn a, a field black, even if he had brown soil, that, that was the expression, turn it black. Because the last thing you want to do is seed into a field full of weeds. So you turn it black, that takes a lot of fuel to cultivate land. Uh, in fact, you know, the, you, know, you know where we get the size of an acre, 43,000 roughly square feet, size of an American football field. That was the amount of land one man with one good horse could plow in one day. One acre. Well, now we have a farmer, he'll, he'll, turn, he'll turn a thousand acres black, you know, with, with uh, modern equipment. But better than that, and, and you can just imagine the amount of fuel being used, better than that, it came out in the 70s. It, it was actually a pipe cleaner <laughs> back in the 30s, Roundup or, or glyphosate, came out in the 70s that instead of turning it black, you turn it brown. And that, that seemed uh, like a great idea. You, you, you used less than one-tenth the fuel to prep the field. Now, again, as I say, People for residential use, they're, they're not seeding a crop. They're spraying outside while the kids are playing and um, maybe not taking all the necessary precautions. But remember, uh, they, they assured us for years, Roundup was the safest herbicide on the market. You could drink it, they said. Now, they've 
they've moved away from that. They moved away from that long before Bear bought Monsanto, by the way. I think they started to realize internally there, there may be some issues with Roundup. In any case, it's yeah, it's it's a it's a herbicide. It was used for about almost 40 years without any of these lawsuits. And you know, and meanwhile, we were living in a very litigious society. People would sue for anything. I, I like the example of how Dow Corning was sued into uh into bankruptcy for silicone breast implants. It turned out it wasn't true, and I don't support breast implants, but it turned out it wasn't true, and yet they were sued into bankruptcy. So so why why were there no lawsuits for 40 years? Well, again, it was being used preceding. Then we saw the advent of the Roundup Ready crop, and it was actually just before Roundup Ready crops that farmers started desiccating. Both of those practices put Roundup on the food. Instead of going on a bare patch of land, and then you wait two weeks for it to dissipate, and then you seed the crop, and now you've got the whole growing season for whatever was left in the soil to dissipate even further. Instead of that, you're, you're putting Roundup right on the crop, and then desiccation is forced ripening. Now you're at the end of the growing season, and no surprise, it's winding up in the food. So to these lawsuits, what are the lawsuits focused on? Well, they're, they're focused on the application of Roundup. In other words, people are inhaling perhaps small dosages of it. And they're doing their best, guys. They're doing their best to avoid that issue of consuming it, of eating it. Now, all sorts of people will tell you like, uh, that Roundup doesn't cause cancer. Okay, it's not as safe as we thought it was, but still very safe. The safest herbicide on the market. They don't claim you can drink it anymore. Uh, That's a bit like saying the safest, you know, TNT on the market, isn't it? Yeah, or or the safest electric chair. I like to say. <laughs> I mean, I mean, goodness, it's it's killing things, and that's what it's supposed to do. And by the way, there, there are organic herbicides and pesticides that kill things. They're toxic as well. It all boils down to how you're using it. So, so like you said, you you, you can find it at uh, Lowe's and Home Depot and. Goodness, people are spraying it all over their yards, all over the, the season. Maybe they even have a garden and they don't realize that that they're they're also putting it on the food as modern farmers are. So the maker, Roundup, will claim they they tested it when they switched from preceding application to GMO Roundup Ready Up. They, they claim that. I, I'm I'm not convinced, but I can say this with certainty. There was no safety testing done on that third piece to the puzzle on desiccation on forced ripening. It just slipped in under the rug. I mean, the, the regulators had already approved it and it just slipped in. So to this day, if, if you go Google agronomists, these are professionals who tell farmers, you know, what's the best crop to grow in this certain area and such and st stuff mm -hmm. like that. They will admit Roundup is not actually a desiccant. It is not recommended in other words officially but everyone uses it and i think that's actually why Werner bowman the ceo of bear bought monsanto people think well he bought it for the the gmo patents those have maxed out any farmer who's thinking of growing gmos has already converted right and europe and russia and large parts of asia have banned gmos so there's really no more growth there. It's going to make the money, but it's not a projected growth area. There's no more projected growth in the preceding weed control market either. Everyone who's using it is using it. I mean, no, no surprise there. But in desiccation, they, they really see growth potential there. Let's cut down to brass tacks here. Let's call a club a club and a spade a spade, which is a reference to the suits on cards because they are what they are on the face of it. 
Um, what we're looking at here, and I think most people that follow are not going to split hairs, um, and they're not probably not going to give the benefit of the doubt because there really is no doubt when you start dealing with lawsuits and using language like probable carcinogen. Well, either it causes cancer, or it doesn't. You can legalize your way around any corner you want to. But the main point here is the people who give a damn about what they put in their bodies, or even people who do spagyrics, which get down to the subtleties of what's in a plant. Uh, are going to tell you this stuff is all against nature and it's all horrid. Um, the idea of blackening a field to plant. Um, we went thousands of years of humans in this world where the only blackening that ever got done is if you burn something with fire to recycle. Um, but when you start getting into the GMO and Roundup Ready crops, I think what most people listening are thinking because right now, that Rockefeller document from whatever it is, 2010, which is talking all about controlling food supplies, this is playing yeah. into that, isn't it? This is about it, the wholesale takeover and artificialization of growing things. And I don't think there's any defending this. And by the way, I guess I, I would split a hair here. Uh, the reason, one of the reasons Bear bought Monsanto is because Monsanto is like dropping the F-bomb for most people who know anything in America. The word Monsanto is a bad word. And so one one thing that's going on here is now it's rebranded re with your, you know, when you were an infant, you took bear aspirin. It's got this whole other vibe going on, but it's really not fooling many of us. I mean, what would you add? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I think this was a plan. I think they knew they were going to get in trouble with desiccation because, like I say, it was never officially approved. And you're right, Crow. Monsanto could never have pulled this off. And this is what they're pulling off. They're going to say for the first time in, it, we're now at the 50-year the anniversary of, of Roundup being first introduced. They're going to finally say, yeah, it turns out Roundup isn't that safe. Monsanto could never have said that. So you're right. They're, they hand the baton to bear. As far as the way things used to be, because I've seen this here with sugarcane crops in Louisiana, turning it black means that you're burning the remnant matter, the plant matter that's still there, and then churning it and getting nutrients back into the soil, right? Well, what, what I was referring to is cultivation, and, and that, that would be called turning it black. But yeah, you're, you're right. Also, uh, burning a crop, which is never advised, uh, but you're right. A lot of farmers do it. None of them are organic, by the way. Organic farmers never do that. That's, um, that, that, that's another way of turning it black. But I, yeah, I was referring to cultivation, which is, requires, again, 10 times the fuel per acre as if you just sprayed the weeds. You're talking about chemically turning it black and then in the yeah. same breath saying that burning it is wrong, which we've all been taught. But I think where Jason was going is that's chemically turning it black. But the point I would make is right now there's research coming out that show in Japan they've slashed and burned for generations. They do it one time in their lifetime and they know 40 years when the next farmer inherits what they're doing, the exact same forest they burn to the ground will be there. That's the way they've been doing it. And this oh, yeah. idea that somehow fire is a no-no, but these chemicals, I mean, that's where you're going, right, Jason? This is a chemical blackening. Right. I wanted to establish what was being done before and then how Monsanto at the time, because Monsanto is definitely a dirty word now. I think that's the one positive thing that has happened with all these lawsuits. But they came in in the 1970s, did you say? Yeah, 74. Yeah. And how did they convince farmers to start using this? Because farmers are very traditional, I guess you could say. They pass things down generation to generation 
And they're not going to necessarily go for the latest and greatest because they know how to make things work in the first place. And there's a very good possibility that it could have been for hundreds of years in a certain location. So I wanted to know the explanation behind how they got in there. How did they convince them? And how long did it take for farmers to start thinking something was wrong here? I think for the most part, they still don't think something is wrong because, as I said, desiccation, the worst of the three uses of Roundup is growing and growing rapidly, which is linked to the reduction in farmers, which we can talk about. But uh, yeah, to, to answer your question, uh, Jason, it was money. Uh, it's, it's literally one-tenth, maybe even less, of the fuel per acre. Cultivation is, as I was saying, we arrived at the, the dimensions of an acre of land because that used to be how much land one man with one horse could plow in one day. Plowing has been replaced by cultivation and disking, still though very labor-intensive, very work-intensive, in other words, a lot of fuel being used per acre. So yeah, it was, uh, it was almost a no-brainer back in the 70s. It was one-tenth the fuel. And then there was also application in orchards where they're not disking, but they had to go out and mow, mow between the trees to keep the weeds from uh, setting seed. And then, of course, the more you mow, the weeds, they're smart. They just start setting seed <laughs> below the, the blade of your mower. So, um, yeah, there, there were other things that they would do in orchards to keep weeds down between the, the trees. Roundup was really embraced by orchardists. Um, then you're, you're getting a little closer to the food, but of course, again, they were doing that before, before the, 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 the apples or whatever formed on the tree. I'm not going to say that was safe. I, I said earlier, I don't, I don't want to defend Roundup at all, but in its first instance, which again was, was purely monetary, Jason, to answer your question, it was a huge savings on fuel. That was, that, that went by that, that, that one just flew by us for somehow for 35, 40 years without any lawsuits. So, so I'm going to say it was the safest of the three. So did they initially pitch it as a, as just a weed killer? Yes, exactly. And just that. So in 1974, they sent out agents from the company to sell the farmers. Hey, we've got this great weed killer here for you. That'll save you X amount of time, which will add up to a whole lot of money for you in the long run. Yeah. Now, and to put that in perspective, for a farmer, whether you're leasing the land or own it, your, your, your biggest expense is your land expense, whether it's a mortgage or a lease. Then you've got sort of a tie between your equipment and your fuel. And then after that, you got, you know, things like all your, your seed, your chemicals, uh, keeping your pickup truck running so you can run into town. And yeah, so fuel is right up there. It's, it's second only to your, to your land expense, really. And so it's huge. Um, like like we used we used to buy fuel, you know, by by the thousand gallon delivery on our farm. And that was only a small farm, by the way. It was less than a section of land, three three quarters of a section of land. So you 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 go through you you'll, you'll go through all your fuel in seeding, and then you refuel again. You, you you phone the fuel company to come load you back up for the the fall. And yeah, it was mainly fuel. The other piece to the puzzle was farmers were already doing preceding burn downs. They're called a preceding kill of the weeds with other chemicals uh, like like 2,4-D. And even in the 70s, environmentalists and regulators knew that those chemicals were ending up in the groundwater, even in well water, which could be 50, 60 feet below the surface. So that was an alarm bell that was going off very quietly inside offices, if you will. The, the public was not aware of this back in the 70s. So there was, in other words, an appetite 
within the halls of power, within the, the regulators, to find a, an alternative to those harsher chemicals, those harsher herbicides. But the whole system you're describing is pretty clear. So at one point, a dude worked his butt off with a horse to plow up an acre. And he worked hard. It was hard work. So as technology yeah. came along, we said, hey, dude, with the horse, you don't have to work so hard anymore. Um, here's these machines that do it. And by the way, you don't got to deal with the weeds. You just spray this marvelous little liquid right here and all the weeds go away. But as this has progressed, what's actually happened is they've slaved out the farmer. The farmer is exactly. completely slaved out at this point. There was no part of this system being implemented that intended to have a concern for nature for food production, or anything else other than the slaving out and control of the food supply. How else could it be? There are plenty yeah. of places in the world that subsidized farmers because they realized the importance of farming. And this went away. Fuel didn't have to be expensive. As a matter of fact, very few people know that before the 60s and supposedly some Southern California oil company showed the Arab you know, how to get all this oil, which they knew about since I think the 30s, we were supplying the majority of the world from the United States with fuel. So somehow the idea that you're not going to recognize the important importance of food production, number one, and make it possible for farmers, it's actually gone further because now they can't even afford the machines, a million dollars for a machine that does the harvesting. So now yeah. there's a big corporation that owns a hundred of these million dollar machines that comes in on your dime to harvest for you. Everything about this feeds in, in my view, to the 2010 Rockefeller doc where they're, where not only right now, if you go outside, you can see human rights under full frontal attack from every direction, but there's more going on here. They're after the food supply. They're after the whole damn enchilada. And what we're talking about here is exactly that, isn't it? And by the way, mm -hmm. the idea that somehow spraying uh, in an orchard before the apple uh, ripens doesn't affect anything is complete nonsense. If you asked a person who did spagyrics or alchemy on every on any level, which is knows the subtle in intricacies and also understands that the plant is part of a whole, which means every grasshopper, every blade of anything growing, it's part of this system. And you come in and you whack everything with a chemical just because the fruit hasn't started yet. You can't convince me ever that there aren't chemicals being ingested by the plants or the plants around them or just generally poisoning the soil away from the natural state it would have been in. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. Well, before the corporations got in there with the chemicals, the Rockefellers did a dirty thing way before that at the turn of the century. Farmers used to be able to make their own fuel out of alcohol. And then the Rockefellers did their deed with the whole petroleum. The Rockefellers doing their thing where they consolidated everything and got prohibition in. And all of a sudden there were no more flex fuel vehicles and farmers and everyone else couldn't make their own alcohol to run their internal combustion engines. So control of this system seems to have started way back in the early... From the outset. Yeah, way back when. So... True farming, where the farmer was kind of free, seems like hasn't happened. It seems like it hasn't happened since maybe the 1800s. Since before we lost the Constitution, maybe, Jason? 
Yeah, <laughs> since, since maybe before 1871. <laughs> yeah. All these people bumping around and, and, you know, every time we mention these things, you know, the, the, all these old things, that they might not have been perfect, but let me tell you something, they would do away with so much of the nonsense. But go ahead, Mish. I mean, this, this was controlled from the onset, but I mean, we need to be honest here. It's not just the slaving out of people, which the farmers are actually no different than any of us. We're all slaved out because of usury, because of credit, because of loans, because of death debts that we call mortgage. Um, we can link these all things back, but what's going on here is maybe a little more insidious because we're talking about the food supply, aren't we? Yeah. And we're talking about genetically modifying it and poisoning. And we're also talking about a system that allows a class action lawsuit to apparently, not 100% sure about this, settle things for all time. So you give a few million people cancer, you call it probable or likely, or whatever your legal ease is, you settle a few multi-million dollar lawsuits and you're back in business making 80 billion a year or whatever it is. See where I'm headed here? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think as you're alluding that Bear and before them Monsanto, they weren't worried in the least about these lawsuits. In fact, you might go as far as to say they they welcomed them and maybe even had something to do with them because they were ready to say, ah, yeah, turns out Roundup isn't safe. What better way to do that than through the courts? Because the last thing you want is legislation. Uh, legislation could be changed, but um, they, they will be indemnified through whatever settlement they come up with. It'll include indemnification. And that'll mean that they can't be sued ever again, ever, just like the cigarette companies. So no one argues anymore about whether cigarettes cause cancer. We all accept it. And because the cigarette companies supposedly paid out, you know, I think it was $250 billion, and they didn't pay a cent. They just passed that cost on to the, the customer by raising the price of cigarettes. Uh, we, we think, well, there, they, 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 they gave their pound of flesh, those mean old tobacco companies. And um, yeah, they're indemnified forever now. So if it turns out 20 years from now, besides, you know, lung cancer, throat cancer, lip cancer and all these cancers, if it turns out it causes something else, like, I don't know, like autism, let's say it turned out that was blanket immunity. It didn't, the, the immunity they got back in the 90s under the Clinton administration didn't list all of the things that were being argued at the time. It was blanket immunity in exchange for which a one-time payment, as I say, about a quarter of a trillion, $250 billion dollars was paid out over the next 25 years. And yeah, that's what they're going for. You'll see estimates in the business news that Monsanto might have to pay out a billion dollars. Uh, it's going to be more than that. And they don't, again, they don't care. Not at all. They, they don't care. Yeah, yeah, what is that? Their profit before lunchtime, you mean? Well, they, they paid, here, here's a good number for you guys. <laughs> they paid $66 billion for Monsanto. So yeah, no coincidence there. Um, but I, I'm saying, never mind a billion, they'll pay another $66 billion to get this monkey off their back because it's forever. Now, now, something else happens when you're indemnified. Not only could you never be sued, even 100 years from now, if they find out that Roundup causes something else besides whatever's being litigated right now in court. Um, not only that, but if you go start up your own Roundup company, which I wouldn't advise you guys to do, but let's say you did in 20 years, you go start a Roundup in some faraway country that over which uh, the USDA and FDA here in America have no jurisdiction, they will find you and they will squeeze you out of business. They'll flood your market with cheap Roundup to, so, so you, you're driven out of business. Indemnification will give them monopoly, in other words. And it'll be a de facto monopoly because whatever uh, settlement they arrive at here in America won't apply in other countries. 
Um, but I can tell you, by the way, the settlement will apply in all you know, Western countries, Europe, uh, Australia, Canada, they'll make sure of that. But it, it won't apply in Uganda, not officially, but it will apply. It, it, it'll, it'll be a de facto permanent indemnity forever for Monsanto. So that's worth, for Bayer, that's worth easily what they actually paid for Monsanto. They would prefer to pay less, of course. They prefer to pay nothing, but they're more than willing to pay for this. They're getting something huge in return. Well, there's other side effects to this whole kind of ugliness that we're describing, which is, I mean, average person listening is probably thinking, are these individuals doing this even human beings? I mean, I think it all the time. I don't believe in aliens, but when I look at stuff like this, it makes me wonder, are these people even human beings? Look at the diversity as an example. If you go back to the air, and by the way, Monsanto was buying up all the heirloom seed companies so they could screw with that market. But what that represents is diversity. Anyone can go online and look up how many varieties of apples there were in the middle of the 1800s, or tomatoes is another good example. But right now, you and I could use for a topic of conversation the potato. Because everybody knows when you walk into that supermarket, it's primarily the Burbank potato you see, right? When I was young, the diversity of potatoes was astounding. And so what's happening here is they're not even taking wholesale control. They're diminishing what it is that can be grown, which incidentally is part of the overall plan anyhow to have Roundup ready crops only. But my point here is if there was ever a blight or something that affected the Burbank potato, guess what? Potato production would be in serious, serious trouble because all the other strains have been removed. There's really no facet of what we're seeing here that is both inhuman, unconscionable, and basically against nature because diversity supports nature. And it took Lord knows how many thousands of years for all these varieties and all this diversity to come. I mean, can can you speak at all to, I mean, the Burbank potato is a good example. Do you, do you know anything about it? Uh, yeah. I, also, I'd add to that the the Cavendish banana. Yep. Um, and then, of course, the the the, pa- the papaya coming out of ho- mo- mostly out of Hawaii. These were all like with the banana; it's becoming uh, uh, infected with some blight, and the papaya about twenty years ago was becoming infected. So, what do they do? Uh, instead of doing whatever our ancestors did for hundreds of years, literally thousands of years for any of these, for whether it's potato, papaya, or, or bananas, or wheat, wheat's another one uh, that comes close to home for me. Instead of doing whatever our ancestors did, which like a switch to another variety, they immediately focus on saving whatever variety everyone is growing. So right now, they're going to come up with the genetically modified banana to save the Cavendish. Uh, 20 years ago, they they genetically modified the papaya. And, and I give them some credit. They remained within the species of papaya. In, in that case, they they got an old variety of papaya. and, and oh, oh, good. With it. Oh, good. We didn't yeah. get grasshopper papaya. They, they did exactly. it and didn't mix yeah. bug DNA with it. They didn't go cross species like Monsanto did with pretty much all of their GMO crops in the 90s. Uh, corns, uh, sugar beets, uh, canola, everything, soybeans. So, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to. <laughs> I hate it when I it's, it's like I was saying at the beginning. I don't want to say Roundup is ever good, but it, it used to be less bad. And so I'd say that about the papaya. I don't think any genetic engineering is advisable. You're monkeying with God's handiwork, handiwork, which people who study DNA will tell you, you should just leave alone. <laughs> you know, now that now that we're 
beginning to get a, a scrap of understanding of how DNA works. Um, but in any case, I, I would just say that was less bad, the GMO papaya, than anything, any other GMO we've ever seen. And yeah, they, they, they never do what you just said, Crow. Mm-hmm. They never uh, revert to diversity. They're always trying to save because they've already, they're already invested, right? They, they've got thousands of farmers growing this one monoculture. And so, yeah, they put all their money into saving it. And I'm sure they're, I'm sure they're lenders. I'm sure that the people who back these companies agree. They say, yeah, why, as far as they're concerned, why go down a rabbit hole and try to find an alternative to the, the Cavendish banana? Let's just pour a few billion dollars into saving it because everyone's already growing it. So from a, from a, a boardroom perspective, uh, you know, as far as dollars and cents are concerned, they think that's the way to go. But it's, it has nothing to do with nature. It has nothing to do with uh, mankind farming the planet for thousands of years. Nothing. It's, it's, a, it's a business decision. You also mentioned that these people aren't human. Um, I, I don't get into all the alien theories like uh, David Icke does. But, but I'll say, yeah, I agree. They are not human. They've sold their souls long ago. They, they might not even have grown up as children with, with real intact souls. So again, for them, this is a pure business decision. They, they don't still got to eat, you know, they still got to yeah. eat regardless of what we want to label them. So, so it even on the face of it, we don't even really need to decide if there's issue or not, because you said flat out, it's outside nature. Nature is yeah. the benchmark for godliness. It's perfect. And so what they're doing is wrong. Um, but you see, I remember years ago, it was claimed that the communist party in China took all the organic produce that was being produced in China for the Communist Party members. Don't know if it's true, but think about what we're saying here. So you're implementing this one way of things for everyone else, which you know is wrong. And when you start describing the blight on the papaya, I'm sitting here questioning, did someone intentionally introduce that blight so they could do this? Because it's really not anything more than a boardroom decision for numbers and control. Every decision that's ever made in a boardroom you can fake like it's about money alone, but it's not just about money alone. It's about control. It's not only how much can we make this year, but how can we ensure that next year, the year after 10 years from now, 100 years from now, we are the boss of this market we're so invested in. And so this is the problem. Um, it sets aside everything we know to be correct. For a papaya to have varieties, thousands of years had to go by where nature perfectly decided what the differences were going to be. Now we got some genius in a lab coat in Monsanto or Bear uh, messing with the building blocks of these plants. And I don't know how much you know about this. I had started to do a line of research where the genetic modifications are not even species correct. There's like bugs, DNA and stuff put into plants, believe it or not. Uh, do you oh, have wow. any experience with that? Yeah, yeah, they they have to infiltrate the the genome, and so yeah, there's they, they can do it microscopically, um, but that's that's hit and miss. And I, I, uh, what, what, most of Monsanto's uh, technologies were developed with uh, by use of pathogens of one sort or another, because pathogens are really good at infiltrating the genome. That's how you get cancer. Um, so yeah, they they actually piggybacked things, and and they would have to do like thousands of trials to get one viable plant where, in other words, uh, one viable plant where the, the genome wasn't so, uh, so, so, so destroyed by the, this infiltration that it just died or was not viable. And then, of course, they got a lot of uh, plants 
that seemed viable, but then they wouldn't reproduce uh, a next generation. So yeah, a lot of hit and miss. They'll, they'll tell you how, many, how much money they invested in doing all this. Uh, you're supposed to feel sorry for them. But yeah, bottom line, yeah, they, they, used, they used the worst part of nature uh, to their advantage. And so that, that's piggybacking on pathogens and bacteria to get into the, the, the secrets of life. All right. Well, I'm going to hand this over to Jason in one second to take us somewhere meaningful before we burn up the first hour. But here's another thing. I was directly involved with plants when I was in Southern California. And we started to see as we approached the year, I don't know, 2003 or four, these plants began to patent plant genomes, which is basically against the law because nature made the plant and they were claiming yeah. somehow that the plant now belonged to them. And they literally treated it like a, plat a patent as if they had invented something. Here's one of the things they did. There were certain kinds of bamboo that had a pathogen that would make little striations on the leaf. I forget what it's called. And if you took a tool and cut one bamboo apart and used that same tool with a, a bamboo that didn't have the striations, uh, it would get them. And so it was pretty much known that once this thing that caused the striation in the leaf, um, that basically all the varieties that, that were common to each other were going to get it. What these guys did is they came in and they started doing, what do you call it when you propagate an agar? Anyhow, they take the germ, they put it in a test tube, and I can't believe I can't think of the word. I was very involved in this. And the agar is the nutrients, and they grew these. And what they realized is the germ had not yet been exposed to the thing. And so they basically got a bamboo that didn't have, like the original one did, didn't have the striations in it, and they patented it, which is illegal by definition. But what yeah. we see here um, over on the Monsanto bear side of the house is a similar thing, isn't it? They're, they're, they're taking ownership of this, but not only are they taking ownership, they're creating some crops that will not seed. And even the ones that do, they're forcing the farmers into a contract. So yeah. no matter how you slice it, they're basically, for all intents and purposes, taking whole ownership on a given crop. And after you answer this, I'm going to let Jason yeah. try to take this somewhere meaningful, but go ahead. Yeah, you're absolutely right. All the crops we grow were developed through through trial and error, through thousands of years, farmers losing their shirts and uh, going bankrupt or, or having, having resounding su success. And then more recently, uh, scientists got in the game. We have land-grant universities. Uh, canola, which is in every deep fat fryer of every fast food restaurant, is a great example because it used to be an inedible industrial oil. It was called rapeseed. And it was used in World War II extensively to keep uh, engines running and certain moving parts. In any case, that was developed, just like all crops were, was developed through, through a combination of public financing and, again, trial and error. No, no private money. There, there's no money in that kind of thing, or at least there wasn't until till recently. So then, yeah, they, they finally convert canola into an edible oil, make it very prolific. And then, yeah... In the 90s, along comes Monsanto, and they add what, what I call, it's not even the icing on the cake, it's the cherry on top, which is just one tiny thing. I mean, if I serve you a sundae, would you say the whole sundae was the cherry? If I, if I charged you five bucks for the cherry and just gave you the, the sundae, that, that wouldn't make any sense, but that's what they're doing. They, they added one thing at the very end, in the case of canola, to make it Roundup ready. And canola didn't really need much help. It's a very prolific crop. It'll choke out weeds just fine. But by doing that, they, they provided, just like we talked about with using Roundup 
instead of using a lot of fuel to cultivate a field before you seed, they provided some modicum of economic incentive to farmers to switch to Roundup-ready canola, even though, again, it, it didn't need a lot of help where, where, where the weeds were concerned. And so farmers saw a benefit. They slowly started converting. Now you have like 97% of all canola is GMO. And the people at Monsanto and now Bear, they'll say, well, we never forced anyone. And you can still grow the old variety if you want. Well, yeah, if you can even find it. I mean, some farmers are growing it on contract for like or organic uh, or organic buyers. So yeah, their, their argument flies. It, it flies very well in the media. Uh, the average layman will look at that and say, well, what's Crow, Jason, and Misha worried about? Mon- Monsanto never took anything. They never stole it. They effectively stole it. And yeah, by patenting a life form, canola is still a life form, even though they put that little cherry on top. And, and I just want to back up one sec. The way they introduced that was by patenting, of all things, you guys are old enough to remember this, they patented a mouse. Why would anyone patent a mouse back in the early 90s? And it made the news. People thought, you know, again, the average layman thought, oh, that seems kind of interesting, having no understanding of what the real game was. The game was this. No one cares about mice. (laughs) There's no mouse growers association. There's a wheat growers association. And in the early thousands, when Monsanto said their their next GMO crop was going to be wheat, all the wheat growers said, no, no, thanks. (laughs) Don't do us the same favor that you did for the canola growers because they can't sell their canola in Japan and Europe now. Thanks, but no thanks. So who cares about mice? You know, like, yeah, they are using mice now in medical, uh, you know, they'll, they'll grow you a new ear on the side of a mouse. But back then in the 90s, no, they did a mouse first to get the public used to the idea of patenting a life form. And there was no one, no one cared. So it was their, that, that got their foot in the door. Following that, of course, then, yes, they, they uh, subsequently uh, patented all of their GMO crops. Um, they claim... You know, they'll, they'll claim th- those those crops are the be all and end all. But, you know, we've we've grown them for decades, centuries without any uh, genetic engineering. The, the key that I hope we get into here for all of these crops and all these technologies is man hours, how many farmers you have on the land. So as GMO crops came in, as more farmers started desiccating, as you alluded to earlier, Crow, you need less farmers on the land. As you said, now one farm, he's not really a farmer, he's a manager, he can manage thousands of acres and he just picks up the phone and calls in the the custom harvesting. Can we even, I mean, it's farming, but it loses the main tenant. What's important here? That we put everything on a spreadsheet and saved money or that the product we made was quality. I'm going to hand this over to Jason so he can hopefully take us somewhere that means, by the way, the word I couldn't think of was in vitro, growing in vitro. Go ahead, Jason. You know, the canola thing even sounds like a setup from way back when, because before that, wouldn't they have used lard for frying most of the time? Yes. Yeah. And that's why when we were kids, French fries tasted a lot better at McDonald's. Yeah. And then McDonald's, even when canola took over because it was so cheap, they still put a bit of animal fat in and then they got sued by the Hindus <laughs> who, who thought they were eating vegetarian fries. And so I think pretty much all fast food restaurants have gotten away from that. But I'll tell you this, uh, Jason, if you go to a fancy French restaurant and order a $80 steak, 
and you want fries on the side. That's for French fries. We, we think French fries are like crass fast food, but they're actually French cuisine. They're still cooking them in animal fat and they taste great. <laughs> well, there's, a, there's another thing that goes on here, though. Before I hand it back to you, Jason, has anyone ever looked at the ingredients on the cheap versions of olive oil? on an American grocery store shelf. I'm not kidding you. It'll be like 5% olive oil and the rest is canola, yet it's labeled olive oil. But anyhow, go ahead, Jason. Oh, wow. Well, this just sounds like the companies in general. You know, I brought up the lard thing just because you see what these companies do. They find a way to get their foot in the door and then they can control the system. Where are we at now? Well, 50 years ago, you had French fries fried in lard. Today, they're using canola oil and most likely GMO canola oil. So you see what they do. This is what I'm getting at. So with that in mind, we can get back into the 1970s with Monsanto coming to the farmers and going, look what we've got for you. So let's take that forward now. How did they get people hooked on this concept in the 1970s? And then where does it go to from the 70s into the 80s and forward? Well, it was a solid economic argument. I have to admit I, I was just a little boy at the time, but I can't imagine being running my own farm and not being enticed by the allure of Roundup, cutting my preceding fuel bill drastically. And that would in turn cut my overall fuel bill for the entire growing season by something significant like 15 or, or 20%. Now, what they do then, as soon as they get you hooked, they practice arbitrage. And that's a French term, meaning they'll charge you whatever they can get away with. And so they just raised the price of Roundup. Now, as long as Roundup was patented, they could literally raise it to whatever they wanted. And not surprisingly, they, they rushed out the first Roundup-ready crops in the late 90s, just before the patent expired. That way, they could really charge through the nose. So, so you had to, if you were a farmer, you had to buy the seed, the Roundup-ready seed from Monsanto. You had to pay a licensing fee per acre, regardless of what your seeding rate was. And you had to buy the, the, the Roundup. There, was no, there were no alternatives for any of those things. So they really stuck it to the farmer. Yeah, but wait a minute. What they're actually reducing is your freedom. I mean, where were you going, Jason? Yeah. Well, again, you're seeing the setup. They get them used to using the Roundup in the 70s. They're using it all through the 80s. Now it's become standardized. Then in the 90s, they're coming in with all these patents to change things over. And let's get it on the record. What exactly does Roundup Ready mean? Because I think a lot of people have probably heard that term. Yeah. I certainly have. What exactly does Roundup Ready mean? What are they selling the farmer with the seeds that are Roundup Ready? Yeah, the bit of confusion there. People think Roundup was spliced in. No, that's your corn. Uh, BT corn, Bacillus thuringiensis, is a bacteria that attacks the corn borer and kills it. And they spliced that. So, so if you think of BT, Bacillus thuringiensis, as a insecticide, because it behaves as one, in that case, they spliced the, 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 that gene into the corn. But on canola and sugar beets and, uh, um, um, uh, uh, what do they call, uh, not lentils, but uh, soybeans. Roundup was not spliced in. What was spliced in, again, remember I mentioned earlier, they, they piggyback their technology on a bacteria. They actually found a bacteria that was resistant to Roundup and then made that part of the genome. So they didn't literally splice Roundup in, which was good for Monsanto, for their bottom line, because uh, when, switching back to corn, when you buy the BT corn, 
the insecticide is built in. You don't have to make a, a second purchase. You just buy the seed and, and don't worry, they, they charge you a lot for that seed. But you don't have to also buy the insecticide. With, with the Roundup Ready crops, you had to buy the crop and it, its genome was changed so it was resistant and you had to buy the, the herbicide. So they, they had a, a, a triple, it turned out to be, because you also had to pay the licensing fee, it was a triple marketing strategy to, to milk farmers. But farmers went for it because they made sure, Jason, to leave, they're, they're not stupid, right? They, they're, they're not going to make you just break even on the deal, because why would you do it? So they left a bit of meat on the bone, if you will. Just enough meat that over the last 25 years, as I say, 97% of farmers have converted to uh, the Roundup Ready version of, of canola. But there's probably also the dangling carrot of, hey, look how much more you can plant and the profits you can make that way, doing it the way we're suggesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, de definitely. And, and the argument there, that then the, that's when the communication department takes over. And so we hear uh, Bear, Monsanto, you, you wonder sometimes if the communications slash marketing department also could be called the propaganda department, if they're really running the show. Because they'll go out and say, we're getting more food from less land. And everyone just sort of says, hey, that, that sounds good. We can leave more natural habitat intact. L let me just say for the record, there's no shortage of land anywhere. It might look like it if you live in a city, but you just drive out of any, even if you drive out of, you know, New York City and Manhattan, you drive out for a half hour, probably take you more like two hours, and you'll see vast expanses of, first of all, of farmland. And vast expanses of untouched wilderness, uh, even between like um, Washington, D.C. and New York. If you've ever driven that route, it's like, I'd say, 80 percent forest. It, we, it's, we've, we've, we have so much untouched land and the land that we're using, even if we didn't have these advanced technologies, don't worry, farmers you know, better a thousand farmers than, than 10. And those farmers will feed everyone just like they always have. You know, Chicago, uh, New York, Detroit, they all had a million people in them before World War One. And so, and don't worry, they, they weren't shipping food up from Mexico back in those days. Those, they were being fed from probably within a hundred or 200 miles of those cities. So yeah, they, they, that's, that's the propaganda we're given that, oh, GMO crops are going to save the environment. I, I actually, ashamed to say, I kind of bought into that for a little while after I, I stopped being a, a, an inspector. I thought maybe there was some benefit to GMOs. But yeah, all it does is cut down on farmers. Now, if you cut down on any headcount in, uh, in, in your labor calculation, you're, you're going to save money. But is, is that good for society? And more of us living in cities is how we got like typhoid fever and, and all sorts of diseases in, in uh, medieval times and during the Renaissance. You don't, you don't want a bunch of people crammed into the cities. And that's all that's happening now. We're just driving farmers off the farm. The, the statistic to keep in mind is there's 90% less farmers today than there was when Roundup first came out. <laughs> and there were, there's, there's, there's other reasons for that, but Roundup played a large role in reducing that headcount. The whole land thing is a talking point that they use, that there's not enough space, there's too many people, all that. That's just more propaganda that they like to push out on us. But we yeah. have to carry that over into hour two because we're here, Crow. Okay. You know, there, and plus we're sidestepping the obvious thing. that This is just another case of a system coming in to slave people out and control them and refusing to look at the place we live as a perfect whole. Nature is perfect. 
And this is an assault to GMO out a crop. When I was in the 70s and we came across this country and we did it every year, at least twice when I was young, 3,000 miles, corn looked a certain way. It was tall. There were three, maybe four ears of corn on it. By the time we were getting up into the 90s, we were driving across and there was all this franken corn. I don't know what it looked like anymore because it had all been kind of genetically assaulted. But we're going to get into ideas that we couldn't cover in hour one, and it's going to relate probably a little bit to some of the nonsense going on in our world, which, by the way, many people are beginning to protest, whether they're more worried about some make-believe sickness or freedom to put a blunt stick in your face. But I hope you'll join us all over at crow777radio.com. That's C-R-R-O-W-77 radio.com. That is the only Crow site, and there are fraud sites. Although I think PayPal's getting ready to whack one or two of them down. We're going to cover things that we can't cover in hour one. It will mostly be to do with the supposed virus if we get to there. Um, because there's an actual effect that we're going to cover about what is ingesting all this do? Why is there a lawsuit that's actually going to admit as much as it's willing that these are probable carcinogens? Well, this is legalese trying to diminish a payout, isn't it? It's not really telling the truth. But anyhow... For the other half of the Monsanto story, join us at crow777radio.com for hour two, where we can cover anything we want. There it is, man. Cheers.
is the enemy of knowing. Come.